I vote Angus doesn't come. And who the hell's this? I'm a chain breaker. Uh, no, he's, he's not. You're a trainee. Got it. A trainee. We've got a trainee. Who? Angus. I'll piss off. I know every single backdoor, loose window, and weak spot in this place. Do you want to get out of here? Or do you want to get caught getting out of here? Sounds like a chain breaker to me. Yeah. Me too. Great. I call this mission. Wait for it. Operation Skippy. Operation Skippy. We need to recon the area. I want to know how many guards there are. I want to know who turns up to work early, who's lazy, and who has keys to the kingdom. Maybe this will help. Where'd you get that thing? Smuggled it in. You're not allowed to smuggle things in. Well, that's why they call it smuggling. Uh, it's, it's not loaded, is it? I thought we could frighten a few people with it. Uh, who's going to be frightened of a senior citizen with a gun? I don't want any civilians harmed on this mission. <laughs> That's a clip from new Australian comedy, Never Too Late. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Never Too Late director Mark Lamprell. This is the second time I've interviewed Mark and I always find him to be an absolute pleasure. Mark is very generous with his answers and is always willing to share his stories, which I really appreciate. Mark has worked in the film industry for many years. In this interview, we discuss launching his career with Kennedy Miller Productions, working with George Miller on an abandoned script for Contact, his time working with an incredible cast of actoring veterans with Never Too Late, and I get real geeky by asking Mark about working with Australian producing veteran Tony Ginnane and working on the cult classic slasher film Cut. Never Too Late is in cinemas now, so make sure you check it out. Anyway, enjoy. Mark Lamprell, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's uh, great to have you with us. Well, thanks very much for having me, Matthew. Um, congratulations on Never Too Late. Uh, the film uh, pr- provides plenty of laughs and, and it's a great escape from the uncertainties of the world right now. And, um, and it's also a great reminder uh, to live life to the fullest and, and take chances before it's too late. And, uh, and you find yourself trying to escape from a nursing home like, like these characters do. Um, so congratulations again. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with the film and I, I'm very much hoping that it will resonate for audiences, particularly people. You know, it's a story of a group of blokes who have been stuck in one place for a very long time and want to get out. And I've, I've got a feeling that in our COVID society, it, it'll resonate with a whole lot of people, that, you know, that... that urge to escape and you know get out and do something it's interesting actually because rams is also due out next week and there, there are some uh, you know some definitely 2020 centric themes in rams as well what is it with you guys do you do you guys have a crystal ball or something yeah do you know it's funny about movies that that they do seem to Resonate on the zeitgeist mysteriously somehow. I mean, obviously, we didn't have a crystal ball when we made this film. We, you know, like we, we but there are so many issues that are more relevant for 2020 than were when we were making the film. It's just, it's one of those weird things. You, you, you do often get it with, with movies. It's sort of like you 
picking up some source from somewhere else or something. I don't know. I'm I'm waffling, but um, it is. I, I, I agree with you. I do. I do think uh, both the movies uh, have that, and I think lots of movies do. It's it's a fascinating thing. Um, before we get into Never Too Late, I, I want to go back a bit um, as far as your career goes. And uh, I, I knew that you wrote uh, Babe Pig in the City, but I was interested to learn that you worked uh, with production company Kennedy Miller. Uh, can you tell us about your experiences working with Kennedy Miller and, and what you took away from that time? Oh, sure. Um, I I was Kennedy Miller for a long time, really, almost straight out of uni. Um, George Miller had seen a documentary I'd made while I was just finishing uni uh, about mainstreaming uh, disabled kids into normal schools. And he liked the doco and said, do you want to come and make uh, a making of Bodyline, so a making of documentary about their miniseries Bodyline, which I did, and then they really liked that, and so I sort of came on board as their their making of expert. So every time they made a miniseries or a film, I would make a making of, um, and uh, ended up the last one I made was the making of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which was the most fantastic experience because I was uh, following George Miller and George Ogilvy round uh, with a camera, filming them making a film, asking them why they were doing this and why they were putting that film there, and. Uh, it was just the best film school ever for me, wow. really. Um, so, yeah, it was just brilliant. Um, and uh, we turned that into an hour documentary and it went really well. And um, I ended up sort of having an association with Kennedy Miller on and off for about uh, 17 years. And I think I went off for a little while and I did some work in corporate documentaries and I worked for Beyond for a while. But I kept coming back to Kennedy Miller and then I stayed for a good slab. I think the last five or six years I was there, solidly there, um, working on Contact, which was amazing because George Miller was originally slated to direct Contact. And in fact, we uh, we wrote a screenplay for that um, uh, which got green lit and everything. It got right up until the final moment when the studio pulled out, which was a real shame. Wow. Broke my heart that one. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then we uh, and then we went on and did uh, Babe Pig in the City mm. after that, um, and uh, that was a lovely experience. Um, look, it it uh, Kennedy Miller is a sort of a mysterious and mythical place. Um, uh, I, I always it was sort of my Camelot, if you like. You know, <laughs> just just I, I couldn't believe my luck that I kind of. It was my first port of call out of doing a media degree, um, and uh, it was just a great place to work. And George Miller is an extraordinary, brilliant man, mm. very kind of uh, very generous when you're working with him, and um, uh, it, it, he just a really great model of how to work too. You know, like he 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 doesn't sit there being a genius waiting for things to arrive he works like a dog at ideas relentlessly 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 mm. and um uh you know he makes great things happen he doesn't sort of wait for them to happen no that's um, right uh, and um uh, you know that was all a great lesson in i guess in how to in how to uh, behave as a storyteller. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, the, so the last time that uh, you and I spoke uh, was when you were here in Perth uh, in 2017 for the release of A Few Less Men. Um, other than preparing for Never Too Late, how have you been keeping busy? Um, uh, I, um, well, I also have a secret life as a novelist. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, I've written... Um, uh, three novels so far and so uh, and novels take me a couple of years to write so uh, uh, I've been very busy 
um, uh, in that time um, uh, writing two novels. Um, and I've just, my third novel has just been completed uh, and uh, that's coming out. It, it, interestingly, that's not coming out till 2022, beginning wow. of 2022. So, yeah. you know, uh, 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 publishing has long lead times as well as movies, <laughs> and uh, and you've also been writing children's books as well, right? It was did you have a children's book released this year? Yeah, we just had a kids' book out called Huberta's Big Surprise, which has done incredibly well, um, which is which was a lovely surprise too. <laughs> um, uh, I guess it's about a, a, a rambunctious hippopotamus who. Um, uh, has to transport herself from uh, – uh, uh, she's moved to another zoo, but the truck breaks down, so she decides to get herself there. And everybody at the new zoo lines up waiting for her to arrive, but in fact she never arrives. She gets a hot air balloon and takes herself off. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of – it's a little story about anarchy, really, for children, you know, don't always follow the rules kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Which I think was a lovely thing. It was so much fun to write, mm. um, and it's really beautifully illustrated. So it just for some reason, it's just hit hit a nail on the on the head with parents and kids, and uh, it's doing really well. So that's a lovely thing. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! It must be good to you know have all of these creative opportunities um, to work on. Yeah, it is. It's. Um, I mean, I think particularly in the vagaries of the Australian film industry, mm. it's not like there's this sort of constant stream of work coming towards you. You you have to constantly be juggling not only film projects, but I find other projects as well. And my my I suppose my natural attraction is is towards storytelling first, as well as being a movie maker. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, I, you know, like I said, I think, well, if there was no such thing as cinema, uh, what would I do? Well, I just, I don't know, I guess I'd be carving into rocks and you know, <laughs> telling stories that way. There'd be some way in which I would be f f finding a way to tell a story. I, I guess that's what we all are fundamentally, you know. Yeah. Um, so th this is, Never Too Late has, has kind of seen a relatively quick turnaround for you considering gaps between your previous films and documentaries. I mean, it was 13 years between My Mother, Frank and uh, God S and five years between that and A Few Less Men. Were you expecting to jump uh, straight back into directing with uh, with Never Too Late following um, A Few Less Men? Oh, I never expect anything. Mm. I, I, um, I, uh, I don't even ever believe a film is happening until I'm standing on a set yes. and I've called cut yeah. on the first scene. Yeah. Um, and even then I'm slightly trepidatious that somebody's going to walk on and go, no, sorry, the money's fallen through, you have to go. Um, you know, you just get used to this business mm. uh, of projects uh, bubbling up and going away and and coming up and everybody gets terribly excited and in a frenzy of action and then it all falls through it's just it is the vagaries of this business really I mean in many ways it's not you know a business is sort of kind of a rather grand word to give it I I, I sometimes think it's just really just a hobby that happens to pay me you know yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> a, a very um uh, yeah an exclusive hobby that's for sure mm, mm. <laughs> um so tell us about never too late uh, or what's it about in in your own words well Never Too Late is about a, a group of Vietnam veterans who um, were famous back in the day for uh, breaking out of a North Vietnamese prison. Um, and uh, uh, it was a famous breakout and they were this famous little gang called the Chain Breakers. And then 50 years later, they all end up in the same nursing home together and um, uh, uh, they decide to break out again, to pull a second breakout. And uh, Never Too Late is the story of the second breakout. 
And the reason that they're all breaking out is they've all got various desires and unfulfilled dreams that they want to fulfill. And each of them gets to do that in their own way by having the courage to break out to, you know, be, and I guess the you know the the message is in the title. It's never too late. That's right. Um, uh, it's just just keep going, just keep living your life, kind of thing. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's very very funny. There's some terrific one-liners in it. Um, their characters were originally uh, World War Two veterans. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. When I got the first, uh, when Tony Ganane sent me the screenplay. Uh, very funny and charmingly written by Luke Preston, but um, uh, it was set in World War Two, and uh, but Tony wanted it to be a contemporary film, so I sort of just did some very quick maths and realised that then all our lead actors would be approximately one hundred years old. Yes, um, if, we, if we were to do that, you know, like have them in a nursing home now, and that that might be a bit hard to cast. Um, and I said, well, you know, why don't we just reset it in Vietnam? Um, and uh, Luke was very much up for that, as was Tony. And so we reset it uh, mm. uh, uh, in a bit more, so it could be a bit more contemporary um, uh, with the actors. Yeah. W- were there any other uh, changes to the script that uh, that you saw immediately that you wanted to make? Um, not really. No. Mm. I mean, I, you know, Luke had pretty much sort of nailed a lot of the kind of the thing. It was a very charming screenplay. It was probably a bit long, and we kind of we brought it down. Um, but, uh, it was in very good shape. Uh, you know, he, he'd done a lovely job. Yeah. Mm. Um, I spoke to Roy Billing yesterday and he told me that, uh, he was a staunch protester of the Vietnam War at the time. Uh, what are, what are your memories of, of that era? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I, I was sort of pretty much a kid back then, but, uh, I certainly do remember protests and, and going with my, my big sister to protest at Sydney Uni. Um, uh, but I, um, uh, I, what's interesting to me, I guess, is the, what, what has happened in the change in the attitude is that back then when it was happening, um, you know, there, it was seen as a war without honor and there were those returning soldiers were shunned and not really valued. And I think what's happened since is a repositioning of that in our culture where we now see the terrible atrocities that those Vietnam vets actually had to live with and and the adverse reactions to things like Agent Orange, our understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, all of those things now we've really come to acknowledge and respect. And at the time, we didn't. At the time, we just saw the pointlessness of the war. Mm. Um, And now we see a whole lot more. So in a way, it's very rewarding to be able to make a movie about this period of time, about people who were deeply affected by this period of time, because you get to explore the complexity of that for them and how difficult it really was. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. 
Um, let, let's talk about some of these uh, terrific actors that that you get to work with here. Um, yeah. James, James Cromwell, uh, he's worked with filmmakers like Oliver Stone, uh, Soderbergh, uh, Darabont uh, and George Miller as well, um, and many others. Uh, he said that he likes to spend time developing his characters to fit the language of the writer. Uh, what was your experience like working with James, uh, who's arguably the most um, internationally recognised cast member here? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does very much <laughs> like to work. <laughs> um, yeah, we had we had many many Skype sessions, James and I, on character and on the script, and he had many uh, kind of script notes and um, uh, uh, little touches and big suggestions. Um, and uh, we worked through them all. Uh, and I it was interesting because I was thinking. What's he going to be like when he gets on set? Mm. Is he still going to be? Because the other thing that I knew is that we only had 20 days to shoot yes. this film. I mean, mm. it's a, it really, I was wondering how I was going to do it in 30 days and suddenly <laughs> it became 20. You know, it was like, oh, my God. Wow. And how much time am I going to be taking up discussing things? But, in fact, what's really wonderful about Jamie Cromwell, he's just the most consummate professional mm. and he came completely prepared. We'd had all our discussions. There was no more discussing to be had. He mm. just got on with the work. He was so extraordinarily well prepared. He knew every line. He knew it backwards. He probably knew everyone else's line as well. <laughs> um, and uh, he just, he, he's just, he's a storyteller first mm. and an actor second. Mm. And um, so he was naturally interested in in how the story would be prepared and before he became part of it. And um he was really the most fantastic contributor and got on so well with everybody else. It was lovely. We had this thing where we were doing table reads um, uh, for a few days before James arrived in, in Adelaide where we shot. And um, uh, uh, we had just somebody reading for James's part, um, uh, but all the other actors were there. Um, and then James arrived and took his part. And I could see all the other actors almost just look up simultaneously <laughs> from there from their scripts and go, oh, holy hell, you know, it's on. Wow. <laughs> and there was this lovely sense of, right, we're all playing with the big boys now and everybody, like, uh, stepped up. Not that they weren't, but, you know, it just it just sort of, it. I guess it just raised the stakes somehow. Yes. And it was a lovely a lovely feeling in the room. Yeah. <laughs> you must have made an impression on him because he, he shot um, Buffalo Soldiers straight after, I think it was, and, and uh, Roy Billing was in that as well. Um, yeah, he, and, and he also did a short film in Adelaide uh, while he was in town, I think. So, yeah, it must have made an impression on him. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking with Roy yesterday, uh, he told me that you were a bit worried about working with such a seasoned cast because they might have trouble remembering their lines. Is that true? <laughs> no, that's absolutely <laughs> not true. Roy's a terrible liar. Um, uh, uh, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Roy Billing is such a treasure. Mm. He, he is just He's a comic genius, that guy. He just brings this ease and this um, authenticity to everything he does. Uh, looks like he's not working at all, yes. but he's another one that is just so brilliantly prepared. Can you know you can tweak any performance with him? Not that you generally need to, because he's he's absolutely got it. And the amazing thing about all these actors was, was that they they're just at a level of their careers really where they should be working all the time because they just know their shit. Yes, and they know it backwards. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they should be working every day of the year because they they're just at a point where they're so good at it. Yes. Um, and and there's no ego and there's no 
you know, is my trailer bigger than his trailer or none of that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just this fantastic capacity to operate at your very best. So it was amazing to work with those guys, yeah. Excellent. Um, I think it's worth mentioning the unofficial member of the Chain Breakers as well, Elliot, who's played by Zachary Wan. Um, he, he brings an injection of youth into the story. Can you tell us about Elliot and, and uh, as the character and what Zachary brought to this production? Yeah. Um, well, Elliot was always there as a character. In fact, we renamed him Elliot after uh, Luke's Preston's son because we he had another name, which which Luke and I kept forgetting. We'd always go, and the kid, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I was like, you know what, Luke, let's, let's rename him because, we, you know, it's not a good sign that neither of us can remember the kid. Um, and so we chose to name him Elliot after uh, Luke's little boy. Um, and... Um, uh, uh, and and that way he stuck as a character, but he was always there even in the uh, in the um, uh, drafts in the World War Two drafts. Mm. Um, and of course, I guess he just he represents uh, youth and and uh, and contemporary Australia and uh, how how a point of, he represents I guess a point of view of how we can look at those older chain breakers and see and see them and see their value yes. um, because he adores them and wants to be part of them. He sort of has, uh, I guess, idolised them in a way that they never would have been as young returned soldiers. Mm. So I guess he sort of represents redemption yes. um, really uh, in the thing. And um, casting Zach was, uh, look, just easy really because uh, I, I was sent the casting director, Amanda Mitchell, sent me a whole lot of tapes uh, uh, of auditions um, from kids around Australia, and he just, you know, leapt out of the pack. It was, one, it was one of those very easy casting decisions where you go, yes, we'll have you, thank you very much. I mean, he just nailed it in the, in the um, audition, really. And um, I, I, one thing I have learned as a director uh, and I would share this with all budding directors, 90% um, of your work with actors as a director is simply casting the right person in the first place. And um, you can kid yourself or you can tell yourself that you're, you can coax a performance out of somebody or if they have, aren't getting it quite right, then you can make it right. But the truth is probably you can't. Um, and particularly if you're working at pace, you know, like if you're trundling along at the pace that we were, uh, uh, you just have to get people who can do it mm -hmm. um, and do it really perfectly, just deliver. And the thing with uh, Zach was I saw that immediately, that he would just deliver. Yes. Uh, and that I wouldn't be doing 20 or 30 takes, that he'd be nailing it in three kind mm -hmm. of thing, mm -hmm. uh, which he did. Yeah. Oh, that is very good in it. Um, Adelaide is producing some amazing films at the moment, and uh, I, I couldn't find a direct link between the film and Adelaide. Uh, why was it shot there? Um, because uh, uh, the South Australian Film Corp is fantastically supportive of Australian films. Yes. Really, that's yeah. just that's the reason. Right. Um, we went there because we knew we get the support from them, which mm. we did. They were absolutely brilliant. Um, and so it's really down to political will. You yeah. know, it's whatever premier of whatever state is interested in having films made there. That's where filmmakers will go, obviously. Mm. Mm. And South Australia are putting their best foot forward to get people there and um uh and that's why we went and it was fantastic we got a we had a brilliant mostly i suppose it would have been an 80 percent australia south australian crew 
uh, and they were fantastic. Um, and uh, it's it's Adelaide's a great city to work in, unlike Melbourne and Sydney, where I'm from. Um, you know, if you want to get across the city in peak hour in Sydney or Melbourne, then there's a two-hour drive. Yes. Whereas if you want to get across the city in Adelaide, it's half an hour. Yeah. And in peak hour, you know, and um, and 10 minutes otherwise. Mm. And so all of that stuff, again, when you've got this huge ticking clock happening, which you, which you, we did, um, uh, all of that stuff makes uh, South Australia incredibly appealing. Great. Um, I have two final questions and uh, I'm going to get real uh, geeky here for a second on behalf of our listeners who are real Australian film enthusiasts. Um, so never too late, you, you mentioned the producer uh, Tony Ginnane. Uh, who, yeah. who's been producing Australian content since the early 70s, including Patrick, uh, Turkey Shoot, Dark Age, and uh, most recently the TV series Pulse. Um, I know that directors and producers don't always get along, but but what did you take away from working with someone who has as much experience as, as Tony? Look, Tony was absolutely fantastic mm. to work with. Uh, uh, we just um, – we never had a creative crossword. Um, uh we were totally in simpatico about my notes on the script, about his notes on the script, um, and then all the way through casting. Casting was tricky because we had a limited budget uh, and there were things like, can we please cast that character, you know, locally, uh, but I'd found somebody fabulous in Brisbane and as soon as I, show, I showed him the tape, it was like, oh, no, we've got to get that person, um, even though we couldn't afford that person. Um, so there were, there, he, you know, Tony's very experienced and he understands exactly what you need to see on screen and what you need to spend to see that on screen. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think... Uh, and also, he doesn't have an ego about inserting himself in that process mm. at all. He's really just about delivering the product to the screen. So um, uh, I found him very supportive, very good and clever on, you know, he's just immensely experienced. He's done something like 50 films. Yeah, yeah. So there's this just this incredible source of wisdom. Mm. So um, I, 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 I suspect that's probably most directors enjoy working with him because he just he he's uh he's very calm and he's very good at what he does mm. i wondered actually having such an extensive cinema uh, filmography whether he's worked with any of these actors before jack thompson I think uh, he's worked with jack yeah, yeah. yeah i think he's done i'm not sure what he did with jack but i'm pretty sure he's worked with jack before well, there you go um yeah. Um, so perhaps a more obscure question, and I'm asking this because uh, this particular film is having a bit of a resurgence at the moment. Um, uh, but what was your involvement in uh, in in Cut? Because it's quite an, a cult kind of classic, and uh, as I just said, it's uh, having a bit of a resurgence. You're you're credited as a screenwriter, but what what's your um what what was your involvement in that? Well, it was as a screenwriter. Yep. I did a rewrite, basically, right, of right. it at some point or other. Um, but I, you know, uh, my rewrite then it. it, it they moved on from my rewrite to somebody else's rewrite. Um, <laughs> um, so it's not quite there. Is it really having a resurgence? That is hilarious. It, it is. Um, well, it's just been released on, uh, on Blu-ray through Umbrella. So, yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Well, God bless it and may it go its merry way. Um, you know, I would like to see more slasher films come back. They, they have sort of – they seem to have vanished for the time being, but um, – uh, uh, I would like to see their return. Although, as I remember, it, it sort of had this added mystical element to it that, that I didn't write into it, that I I thought wasn't quite 
didn't quite work for the genre, but um, uh, uh, it's still great that it's out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people are watching it going, what the hell? Um, so I like that. That puts a smile on my face. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Well, uh, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I love uh, getting to chat with you and uh, and I look forward to everything you do. Um, congratulations on Never Too Late and all the best with it. Oh, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.